Welcome to Mad Lit Musings, a podcast with Jamie Jo Wright, where we go deeper and ask the tough and dangerous questions. Today's episode is sponsored by Ravel and Bethany House Publishers, which are divisions of Baker Publishing Group. Find out more at bakerpublishinggroup.com. Hey everyone, it is Jamie Jill Wright, and we are here with Madlit Musings Podcast. And I am super excited today because we have two great authors with us talking about a book that I'm really excited about. But first of all, we have Tasca Lee and we have Marcus Brotherton. So thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited. And um, the book that you guys are coming out with um, releases, I should have asked before we started, but it releases... May 2nd. May 2nd. Okay. It's called The Long March Home. And it's a World War novel of the Pacific. It's published by Ravel Publishing. Um, would one of you like to just kind of give us a quick rundown? Quick, because that's how World War II novels go. Uh, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about the book and what it's about. Um, I can do that. It's yeah. um, This is the story of three best friends, Jimmy, Hank, and Billy. And then their, their fourth best friend is uh, Billy's sister, Claire, and she figures into the story as well. But it's the story of these these three these three boys um, who grow up together and enlist in the army in 1941 and are stationed in the Philippines. And that's where they are when uh, Pearl Harbor is bombed, which plunges the Philippines right into war within hours. And so they... Um, they are fighting in the Philippines and um, they end up uh, defending the Bataan Peninsula, um, become prisoners of war during the Allied surrender in April of 1942 mm-hmm. and become um, part of the Bataan Death March, which is a, a chapter of history that um, a lot of people haven't heard of. And mm-hmm. I hadn't heard of when, when uh, Marcus approached me about this book and um, but they're marched over 60 miles to a prisoner of war camp and everything they've gone through, fighting, fighting without supplies, fighting without enough food, being terribly sick, terribly malnourished, all of this stuff that was only the beginning because now they're they're prisoners of war. Um, this book has a dual timeline. And so we, we leave the war timeline every now and then to go back in time to when these three friends are young and growing up and and we see what it is that bonded them together and forged this brotherhood between them. Um, And also we see a little bit about Jimmy's relationship with Claire. And these are the memories that help sustain our main character, Jimmy, uh, throughout the story. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was um, quite a different war front over in the Philippines. And what we were saying before we got on here was that we don't hear about it a lot, um, or I shouldn't say a lot, but we don't hear about it as much as we hear about the European front. Um, so Marcus, this was originally your idea, correct? And how did that come about? Yeah, it was, um, it all started one uh, summer day in uh, 2010, <laughs> which we just laugh about now that uh, this is the, the, uh, the 12 year plus novel. <laughs> um, don't let go of your dreams kids because right. uh, someday, someday they do come um yeah and I, I had read this oral history of the Bataan death march and you know we were talking right before the uh the show started just about your grandfather who was mm-hmm. over there and wow like we're really not that far away from this 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 time period 
And uh, it was my my first um, introduction to the subject way back when. And I was sort of shocked and 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 aghast and 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 fascinated. And um, I, I knew I had to do something, you know, as a writer. So the um, I, I love oral history, but the, the kind of the challenge with oral history is that um, you're not immersed in the subject as a reader. You're not sort of immersed in the characters. You're kind of given the six thousand foot view. So um, at the time, I said I, I wanted to immerse readers in into this uh, into this period of of history. I worked on this book for seven years. It was a passion project. It was kind of on the back burner. Worked on it and uh, came up with a manuscript. And uh, it was good. You know, I sent it out to early readers and got good feedback. But there's something about me that's just kind of a, a perfectionist where I went, you know, it's good, but it's not great. And I wanted this book to be great, you know, as a tribute to the, to the people yeah. who were truly there. And um, it was really a case of me being too close to the canvas. You know, you, you, sometimes you, you just need to step back or take a deep breath. And that's when I phoned Tosca and said, hey, uh, I know your work. Um, you're an excellent novelist. Here's what I'm trying to do. Can I send you this manuscript and then let's talk? And, uh, and Tosca went uh, guns blazing into this project and just said, yes, we have to do this. So <laughs> that's the short story of how it all Guns blazing out. for five years. I added five years to that project. <laughs> I like that, though, because when you have that much time put into a novel, you also know there's that much love and appreciation for the content that's going into the novel. And I'm sure this did not come without its fair share of research, too. Um, so Tosca, you got involved with the novel then and you, you said you added five years onto it. Did you have to go through a whole learning experience then about the actual history of it as well? For sure. Absolutely. So I haven't had the honor and pleasure of interviewing survivors the way that Marcus has, um, but I've studied and read a lot of survivor accounts. Mm -hmm. And um, and then also, of course, there's research into the setting, not just in the Philippines, but um, the book you know, the boys come from Mobile, Alabama. So research and setting research into the, the time period when they're growing up during the depression. So it was it was really fascinating for me. It's a time of, of history I haven't written about before. And um, I, I love the research process. Yeah, it's that is its own siren call. Mm -hmm. You know, the research part is it's, sometimes it's hard to leave that part and get back to the writing even. Right, right. Yeah. And the Pacific Theater is not sh short on the amount of stories right. and, and battles that took place there that are so intricate and were so pivotal to the war itself. Um, so that's I, that's my own personal my, uh, history. <laughs> my subtle encouragement to Tosca, I, I guess it was more my overt encouragement to Tosca at the start, was uh, make, make it your book as much as it's mine mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and just be as free as you can be. And she did, to Tosca's credit, I think, you know, some writers may have just sort of crossed the T's and dotted the I's. Mm -hmm. She dismantled it. And um, <laughs> uh, sometimes just to, to learn and, and to make it hers and kind of ingest the characters into her mm -hmm. own being. So it was great. Yeah, Tosca worked on it uh, for a number of years. And then toward the end, we kind of uh, did back and forth drafts just to get it all into one voice. Mm -hmm. And so it truly was a collaboration. It truly is Tosca's book uh, as much as mine. That's awesome. I love that. Now, uh, Marcus, did you actually do any interviews with anybody that survived the um, the death march? I have, yeah. In fact, uh, just last month, I was talking to a 101-year-old veteran wow. uh, who had been in, in uh, Batan during that time. So 
I, I did uh, actually an oral history project along the way. As much as I'm sort of critical of oral history, I also love it mm -hmm. uh, because it, it does take you face to face with the with people who are there. And uh, I worked with historian Adam Akos on a book called Voices of, of the Pacific. And we talked to any number of veterans who had fought over there as well. So, Yeah. Wow. That's got to be quite a experience to hear them tell the tales of, of what they experienced. And also that they're willing to tell them is a big thank you to them. So I think a lot of the survivors didn't talk about it for a long time. Right. And, and I think many of them who did only did later in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us for, for readers who are listening, um, I'm making the assumption that people know what the Bataan death march was. Um, Tasca, do you want to tell us a little bit about what it was? Mm -hmm. I, Marcus, this is, I, I going to hand this one over to Marcus because okay. he's the one who did the initial there we go. research into this. Uh, just shortly after Pearl Harbor was attacked, just a few hours, um, the, the, the nation of Imperial Japan also attacked the Philippines plus any number of other countries. And so um, uh, American troops were stationed there and they were allied with the Filipino troops defending the islands. And so the, the allies fought back in the Philippines against Imperial Japan uh, for uh, about five months. And, uh, but they were, they were cut off. They were outgunned, they were outmanned. Uh, the, the tr various tropical diseases were hitting the American troops particularly hard. Uh, they didn't have any food. They shot all their horses and ate their horses. I mean, it was just a bad, bad situation. And they really had nowhere to go. Plus, with uh, most of the, the, the fleet destroyed at, at Pearl Harbor, they just couldn't get reinforcements. They couldn't get uh, new supplies, more ammunition, things like that. So finally, it was the largest ever surrender of American troops um, in a modern war. And um, when, once the troops surrendered, Imperial Japan rounded up the American and Fili Filipino troops on the Bataan Peninsula and marched them north up to various uh, prisoner, uh, prisoner of war camps. It was a horrific time. It was uh, if a man fell out of line, he was bayoneted. If a man, uh, you know, stopped for any reason on the march, he was beheaded or beat up. Um, lots of troops died on the march itself. And so this is, this is core to this story that... Uh, uh, Jimmy Profield, the, the, the main protagonist, he, he's kind of got this worldview, and this is really the fascinating piece of the story as well when you get into these characters. He's got this idea that if he just does what's right, then life is going to work out. You know, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of us have, have yeah. this idea, right? And when he's put in this horrific situation, uh, this, is, this is the dismantling of his worldview. Oh, um, if I do what's right, life doesn't turn out right i mean this is kind of one of the big questions of, of people's lives today why do bad things happen to good people mm. and jimmy is really thrust in that environment yeah wow mm. and that's a tough environment to learn that question or <laughs> ask the question yeah. and answer it right and most of the guys that were on this march i mean i think my my gut instinct is to think of them as you know mature men but really they were younger teenage late teens yes. yep. early 20s right these guys were the same age as my 18 year old sons. Oh. So, um, I, I have two twin boys who are mm -hmm. 18 and I look at them and I, I just can't fathom. It doesn't, you know, make any sense. But so many of these guys were really not that old. And then you've got people who lied about their age to enlist who were, you know, in, the, in Joe Johnson's case, 15 years old when he's a POW, 
um, you know, 16, 17 year olds. These are teenagers. It's and, kids. Oh yeah. And the and like Marcus said, the rules of, of being a POW, you know, the thing that keeps you alive one day might not keep you alive the next day because there's no set of rules that is consistent for them. Yeah. So survival is very topsy turvy. Yeah. For them in this world. Wow. Okay. Mm. Man, I hear you. I hear you guys talking. My mind just goes into meditation mode, like just wanting to go, not wanting to, but thinking back and going back to what they might've experienced and just the different emotions, the fear, the homesickness, the physical pain, the just everything that was put into that. Yeah. 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 And then just picturing like my 18 year old nephew. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow. What is a a shock. Amazingly gritty story. I mean, it's, it's difficult to read in places just because the history just, you know, butts up against real life. You're like, Oh my gosh, that really happened. Uh, and yet, and yet Tosca was able to intersperse this very sweet home front story mm. that, that uh, parallels the story. So there are uh, places to, to catch your breath and um, places to laugh and places to um, definitely cry. And, and mm-hmm. as you're cheering these, these people forward, really wanting uh, them to succeed in all areas of life. Yeah. Yeah. Are you enjoying today's broadcast with our featured author? You can find out more about them and other authors from Baker Publishing Group at bakerbookhouse.com. Use code MADLIT40 for 40% off any one Baker Publishing Group title at bakerbookhouse.com. This also includes Ravel and Bethany House Publishing. Go over fast. It's MADLIT40. That's your magic code for 40% off any one Baker Publishing Group title. So when you both set out to write this together, did you have kind of a mutual mission or hope that you, you know, when a reader picks up your novel and reads this, this story, was there a specific hope that you hope they grasp something from it? Mm. And what was that? You know, for me, it's always that, I mean, this is fiction and Mm. Uh, it's inspired by true stories, but at the end of the day, if we only wanted to learn, we would read nonfiction. And so for me, the the goal is always to keep readers engrossed and turning the pages and staying up past bedtime. And I, I do like to educate readers too. So, mm-hmm. you know, whenever I write any historical fiction, I always like to add things in, even to well-known stories that might shed new light on that story. And so I think there's a lot of the educational component as far as here's what happened in this chapter. Um, but I really like, I like readers to simply be engrossed and mm. to be inspired because that's the other thing. I, I never want readers leaving a book feeling like, oh gosh, I've just been through the ringer or I need to take a shower or whatever it is. I want readers to leave feeling inspired and the better for having read the book. So for me as a novelist, that's what I I'm always aiming for mm-hmm. Marcus might have slightly different goals. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, we, we, we use the expression powerful emotional experience in the writer world, the PEE. Mm-hmm. And uh, e- even though the book isn't out until May 2nd, we've had copies of the book circulating uh, early in advance and there's someone net galley and um, people are reading it already and we're getting some amazing feedback and uh, people are writing is just saying they bawled and they laughed and sort of did everything in between. 
And it's, it's not, this is not a, um, it's not a light book. Mm-hmm. It's not a book that you sort of uh, read and then never think about it again. It's a, uh, it's, it's a book that changes your outlook. And ultimately I think it makes a person more grateful mm-hmm. uh, for what we've been given today. Yeah. Well, and it brings you, yeah, that gratitude. I always remembered that when I grew up in the the shadow of my grandfather, who, like I mentioned earlier, was stationed over in the Philippine area for four years of the war. And he came out of it. Um, and shortly thereafter, he ended up getting MS, diagnosed with MS. And they believe it was probably an offshoot of something that he experienced chemically in the war or something like that. So for most of my memory of him, he was an older um, man who couldn't really get around very well. And so he spent most of his time dunking donuts and milk and coffee and, you know, teaching me how to drink coffee. And this gentle man who grew up in Wisconsin was a farmer and had all these quiet stories, ended up being a butcher um, later on in life, et cetera. Um, you know, growing up in his shadow, he was so heroic just as who he was. And it wasn't until after he died that my grandma started feeding me all of his his military uniform, his medals. And then she pulls out a tin with four years of letters that she had wow. saved. And you start realizing that these men who built relatively normal, and I'm doing quotes in the air <laughs> for those who are just listening, um, relatively normal lives were hiding and holding and harboring such traumatic memories and such sacrifices that they gave for me to be that 10 year old sipping coffee with my grandpa, Mm. you know, and that full circle is just, has always just given me goosebumps and um, yeah, sorry. I'm not sure I was going with that, but went down my own little trail of memory. Were they, were they married when he went over there or were they, were they sweethearts at that point? They were sweethearts and they'd had a very, very fast wedding. And did a very, Uh very quick wedding. And then he went over um, and my aunt was actually born while he was overseas. So when he came home, he'd never met his daughter. And daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And my grandma always told the story too, because she had a picture of him in his military uniform. And so every night she'd tell my aunt Judy, go give daddy a kiss, give daddy a kiss, good night. And she would kiss his picture. Well, the first night he was home, um, you know, they'd been introduced and grandma said, go give daddy a kiss. Good night. And she's expecting this, you know, emotional moment. And she ran right past him to the photograph oh, wow. <laughs> and gave the photograph That's kisses. Great. So That's great. yeah, yeah, yeah. But so Marcus, what, um, what do you think it is about world war two history, um, in fiction and in real life that, has us give it the moniker the greatest generation what is it about that well just like a grandfather we have these ordinary people on so many levels and then they're put into these extraordinary circumstances and so it it begs the question what would i do then Mm -hmm. and i think it also begs the question how can i learn from this person's experiences Uh, how can i be inspired by them Uh, i was telling tosca A number of years ago, I, I, I've done some projects with the the Band of Brothers, the original uh, paratroopers there, mm-hmm. who were featured in the HBO series. And um, uh, one of the guys I was talking to, he had he had fought in 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 the Battle of the Bulge. He was in Belgium. It's a winter situation and uh, thirty degrees below zero, 
And this poor guy, he doesn't have any boots. I mean, he, he's, he's literally going to combat because they just rushed him to the line. And so he wraps his feet in burlap bags. Mm. I mean, that's how he goes to, to go fight the, the enemy. And right about the time when I was, I was talking to this veteran, I went to a car auction in winter. And I was standing there on, on, you know, outside with these various cars that were coming up to the block. And it was snowing that day. And I was cold and kind of grumbling, yeah. oh, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, if, if if the guys can go fight in Belgium wearing, you know, burlap bags around their feet, you know, instead of boots, I can surely tough it out at this car auction, you know. <laughs> so there really is a, is, is a life-changing component to this. You, you start yeah. to study what the ordinary people did and you go, you know, I've got life pretty easy. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's got problems in life and, and we're all sort of on this scale. But comparatively, wow, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not fighting in Belgium in 30 degree below, you know, right. temperatures. No boots. <laughs> Yeah, no, no boots. boots. Oh my goodness. That's a story in and of itself. Jeez. Wow. Um, Tosca, when you wrote and you and you continued to work on Marcus's manuscript that he sent to you, was there um a character that you really connected with? Mm. You know, I connected with all of them on a different level. And I and I have to say, you know, the, the great thing about working with Marcus is he doesn't hold things with a tight fist. Mm. You know, he's He's not hovering. He's he he basically handed over all the stuff and said, "Here you go." And I took it and I said, "Okay." And then you know started as he said, dismantling and going in and exploring. And um, I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed seeing how their childhood and their experiences together doing childhood things like fishing or frog hunting or whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, eating jelly sandwiches at one another's homes and listening to the radio over at his friend Billy and Claire's house. I really enjoyed seeing how those things impacted and strengthened their bonds mm-hmm. as they went into war. I've written from the viewpoint of of men and women, of, mm-hmm. of male and female points of view, and I write in first person a lot. So I really identified with all of them and felt very comfortable um, writing all of them. That's awesome. That homegrown effect of the 1930s and 40s. And well, I guess if they were kids, it probably would have been, yeah, probably 1920s, 30s. Growing but... up into the third, into the 30s. Yeah. 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 Into 41. And mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Oh man. What a life. <laughs> what a life. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Well, um, for readers who are wanting to follow this book, find this book, follow both of you as authors, um, tell us, I guess, Marcus, we can start with you. Tell us the best way for readers to follow you and find out more about you and, and your work, and then we'll graduate to Tosca. MarcusBrotherton.com is my main website, and then on uh, Facebook and Instagram and, uh, you know, a number of sites like that. So, uh, and the book is available everywhere. Uh, ask for it by name mm-hmm. at a bookstore near you. There you go. All right. And Tasca, how do they find out more about you? Uh, you can go to toscalee.com. It's T-O-S-C-A-L-E-E.com. All the links to my social media are there. I am on all the social media and um, yeah, all the normal suspects. And you can, you can ask for Tosca Lee. Wonderful. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to be here and, and chat about the book. The book is called The Long March Home a World War II novel of the Pacific. It's written by Marcus Brotherton and Tosca Lee and published by Ravel Publishing. 
and coming out on May 2nd. So you can get your pre-orders in now. That's always a good thing. Then you don't have to forget about them later if you're hearing this before May 2nd. Otherwise, like Marcus said, go to your nearest bookseller, snatch mm -hmm. it up. So, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to Madlit Musings. You can find out more information about Madlit and all that it has to offer at madlitmentoring.com. That's madlitmentoring.com. Or check out more about Jamie Jo Wright at jamiewrightbooks.com.